Let's get uh, started with uh, this quick zero uh, dilemmas, uh, Rishi. Um, optimize every page for every customer or pick a specific area and uh, improve the shit out of that. I, um, I, m I must be honest with you. I actually uh, I came up with this question um, because of actually our last episode, uh, the last episode we had together. So I'm, I, have a, I have a suspicion of what you're going to choose, but um, maybe you change your mind. So let me know. What are you going to pick? Mm no i think that uh, i think the thing to focus on is the point where the decision is made by the buyer and the reason i mentioned the decision is made by the buyer because this could change from business to business there could be certain scenarios where the landing page is where 95% of people are just rejecting your sales pitch and in that case I would focus on the landing page, but I think what happens, this is one of the things that I find happens a lot with uh, brands is there is this kind of tendency to look at CRO as being the wholesale business. And so sometimes I'll talk to clients and I'll say, you know, I want to focus on your best selling product page. And they would be very convinced by what I'm explaining and all of that, but they would say, but Rishi, you know, our next 5,000 bestsellers also have very similar attributes. Why not like just focus on all of them, um, you know, while we're at it. But I think, I think there's a lot of value that comes from having singular focus. So for me to answer your question again, in simple terms is focus on that, that pivotal moment where the make or break happens with the consumer. Nice one. Uh, zero, or should we use another term? I like CRO because I believe that the, as marketers, we need to be where our consumers are. And, you know, as much as CROs are kind of bored with the term CRO, the reality is that CRO is still very much in its infancy. I just posted the other day on LinkedIn that someone I was talking to told me that CRO is where SEO was 20 years ago. So we're still in very, very early stages. And I think as marketers, it's important to use the language of our customers. And my customers use the word CRO uh, to define anything in, within the realm of conversion optimization. I'm not trying to sell a service to other CROs. I'm trying to sell a service to CEOs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and that's a good. That's but I think that's also uh, the reasoning uh, from uh, from some of the CROs um, that uh, maybe their clients are not talking about it. So then it might make sense to do not uh, to yeah. use another term. But if you say, oh, all my clients are asking. Can you do zero? Yeah, sure. Then don't change the the name they already know, right? Yeah, I think I think there's at least a baseline understanding about what CRO is, and then you can kind of uh, educate them from that starting point. Versus, you know, uh, I also think there's, you know, I also think that from a scope perspective, CRO has a very defined scope, and so from a from a hiring from a when a, when a company is thinking about hiring a, an expert they always feel comfortable bringing on someone who's going to do just the plumbing for my guest bathroom um, versus someone who will come in and can also fix my whole house, you know? Yeah, exactly. Next one. And last one, Bayesian or Frequentist? I'm not a statistician. I just use a statistics tool. And since that statistics tool uses Bayesian statistics, then I will bet my, I will bet my career on that. Exactly. Nice. Uh, thanks for for indulging us with uh, those uh, quick zero uh, dilemmas. Um, let's dive into the to the topic, uh, Rishi. Uh, really appreciate uh, you coming on the show for a second time. Uh, definitely, for those who haven't listened to it uh, yet, we uh, I'll, I'll link to the first episode that we had uh, in the 
in the show notes, uh, but those that uh, haven't listened uh, to that yet, uh, what, what's your elevator pitch if uh, if uh, someone asks, hey, Rishi, who are you and what do you do? So I call myself the Shopify product page guy, um, primarily because Shopify is, uh, is, is a huge ecosystem. Uh, but really, I would say that my whole focus is has always been on one singular thing. So I you know, don't look at, you know, the overall conversion rate. I'm really looking at like, okay, where is the consumer making the ultimate decision? And for an e-commerce business, you know, unlike in case of SaaS and in case of other uh, business models, for an e-commerce business, what we find from heat, from heat maps and from eye tracking studies is when people first navigate to a website, they are somewhat disoriented. So they are very quickly trying to figure out the hierarchy of the website and they are very quickly navigating. Uh, they, when, we, when we look at their behavior, we notice, we notice that they're moving very quickly. And what happens is that when they come to the product page, which is what they navigate to, they come to a grinding halt because we've been trained to, ex to know what to expect once you click on the add to cart button. So we know where, how that movie ends. So, we, so what we find is that across all verticals, uh, people are like when they first come to the landing page or they come to the home page, they are very quickly navigating from there to the category page. They're doing the search. They're coming to the product page. And so therefore, all of the content that we might have put for them higher in the funnel is mostly being ignored. And then when they come to the product page, they are kind of making that difficult decision of should I buy this product or not. So to me, because that is the point where the decision is being made, that is a point where the consumer has the most amount of anxiety. Because you see, before the product page, I have zero anxiety. If I'm buying a buying a piece of uh, you know equipment, workout equipment that costs five thousand dollars, I have no anxiety on the homepage. I have no anxiety on the category page. Um, but if I come to the product page, suddenly my anxiety, my cortisol levels go up like crazy because I now know I'm one step <laughs> away. Step. I'm at the end of the window it's shopping. It's going to cost experience. me money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think within uh, uh, within e-commerce, it's it's uh, it's usually relatively simple, right? I mean, the structure of the page. People are used to uh, what an e-commerce page looks like. They know what the flow is going to be, and there's there's well, at least there's the expectation of what the flow is going to be because uh, a lot of people have experienced it a lot of times over and over. And um, uh, yeah, I, I always get very confused if if e-commerce uh, companies are are uh, trying to do it very differently like more like sometimes it is, is you encounter encounter this website is more like a, a very heavy uh content focused website very a lot of storytelling that's i mean i, I really love storytelling about uh, a lot of brands but sometimes it's uh, yeah i counted one uh two weeks ago and i i don't remember the brand it was so heavily focused on uh on content and um and um uh the st storytelling and uh it, it was not it was also not based on an e-commerce platform it was like it was very heavy code and and some sometimes somewhere on the page you, you could find um the shoppable elements and i was i was confused as hell <laughs> with this website uh as to as to how the flow of e-commerce but normally it's it's very contained and uh for for zero um practitioners that work in e-commerce it's at least the setup is, is usually fairly straightforward and uh, same for customers. And I think you bring up a, a actually a very, very good point. 
Um, and I think this is something that I, I'll just touch on because it will relate to what we're going to discuss later on, which is this idea that Guido is not the same as Rishi and different people have different shopping preferences. And I don't know where this, I think this comes from the print era where in print you can only have essentially one version of an ad. You might be able to split test uh, across, you know, but you can't, people can't personalize their ads. Um, and I think it comes from there. But to me, it's a huge lost opportunity. I think every platform should be used for what it is good for. And one of the great things about the digital platform is I can do testing at scale. And so when you talk about this website where they are so content heavy and they are focused on the story, what you're really telling us is that it that was not the mode that you preferred uh, to be sold to for that website. Yeah, and, and, and I, I didn't. I, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a good idea, but I, I was. And I'm. I think because of my background, <laughs> I got a very curious. I, I almost sent them. Uh, I looked them up and uh, sent them an email. Hey, I would like to look at your analytics. I, I would love to know and learn <laughs> what's happening here and how this is uh, this is working for you because it's, uh, I think it's fascinating when you encounter those websites uh, that have a totally different approach. No, and I think it's a very, very valid point you're bringing out. And so it's not only, it's a very interesting thing. Um, it isn't just that you have a different personality versus me but your personality is situationally different from yourself itself for different scenarios. Yeah. And so the point I want to make over here is that what brands will typically do is they will survey their customers and they'll say 80% of our customers in our surveys responded that they, that they really are really liked our storytelling. Uh, therefore let's use, let's focus on that. Now there are two problems here. Number one is this leading question. We tend to, marketers tend to have very limited understanding about the psych, your, 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 your background is psychology. So you understand the, the, the difficulty with these kind of leading questions. The other problem is that we are using the fact that 80% of people prefer something to say that let, let, let hundred percent of people experience that. And my whole take is that what if we created clever mechanisms where instead of showing, going back to that example you were talking about, instead of showing the entire story upfront, what if they showed part of the story and let the user click on something to indicate that they want to see more of the story. And then, then it will open up situationally for people who were interested in that. And then the other people could actually navigate, you know, I'm just making this up, but I, I really find yeah. it a great opportunity uh, even on product pages different people are looking for different types of information and are looking for different types of persuasion in order to make a purchase decision. And instead of making the page super long, like a Wikipedia article where you are taking care of all the use cases, what if you were to make the page short and to the point, but allow a mechanism for the user to say, Hey, I want to learn more about your, your, you know, your motor, or I want to learn more about, you know, how this machine, will help me lose 20 pounds or whatever it is that they're looking for. Uh, I think that's just a much better user experience and it leads yeah. to better conversion rates. Yeah, and there, and there are even uh, two additional issues with with uh, the research that you mentioned. Uh, like the first is uh, that 80%, uh, that's 80% uh, of the people like storytelling, but 80% of the people that responded through the survey, so that might not be everyone anyway. Uh, and, and the second one is that, I mean, survey, what, what people say in surveys and the actual behavior 
might be quite different. So that's definitely something. I mean, that's why well, we do zero, right? That, that's why we validate uh, stuff here. So that's, um, uh, but it's important uh, to keep in mind uh, when, yeah, seeing those reviews. I mean, it's, 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 it's funny or scary how often you see, and I, I'm sure you see them often too, and when you see uh, colleagues from, from client companies saying, okay, we did this survey, <laughs> this is what came out of it, and then you almost already know for certain. <laughs> there are some conclusions being drawn here that might not be fully, fully valid, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, Rishi, we're here together to talk about uh, nine psychological variables uh, uh, you can you can play with uh, when you craft copy on the product detail page and um, again I think we, we take the product detail page as an example but like I said let's keep in mind it should be uh, the page where uh, most people uh, make the buying decision right so in e-commerce that's you, we let's assume that's the product detail page. Um, that's an assumption that we make here, and that's 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 something you need to uh, figure out for yourself. But that's the assumption that we're going to do here, and then uh, you have nine psychological principles uh, for us to go through. So, yeah. first, for my I, first my first question for you: Why nine? Where, where where did these come from? You know, that's a really that's a really good question, um, and it, it, it I have a very tortured answer. We've been actually working on this. We've been working on this list for the last five years now. And the when we first started the project, our idea was that, look, we've done all of this testing. I've been doing testing and optimization for 13 years now. Uh, I think I hold the, world, hold the world record for the most number of failed experiments. Um, and But in the process of experimentation, we learned some really interesting insights and then we started building our understanding almost like we were navigating a forest and we tried to predict the layout of the forest based on the part that we had explored so far. And so five years ago, we said, you know what, instead of just continuous, continuing to experiment, uh, why not kind of create a model for the things that we want to exper experiment around? And so we started off with a list of seven, then we expanded it to 16, then it went to 24, um, then it came back down to 15. And, you know, we would constantly find new things where like, oh, we never accounted for this specific use case. Uh, so exam for example, we had a tactic called the power tactic. And the idea of the power tactic was that you want to let the consumer know that they have the power, like the decision is there, it's their decision versus the marketer forcing them to make a decision. And then as we started maturing, we realized that some of these tactics could be bundled. It's almost like finding a periodic table, exactly the same mechanism. We knew that there was a bunch of tactics out there, but we didn't know what they were. And we were trying to, we were trying to fit them and we would have to rearrange all the time. So when you ask the question of where the nine came about, the nine came about as the result of five years of tears where we cried to bed every night. And then we eventually came up with a stable list. And for the last two years, this list has been completely stable. So I feel optimistic that it will remain stable, but it could change. So that doesn't mean that you're not crying uh, yourself to sleep anymore. Now that you now no. that you have these nine, you're not, you're now, not crying. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's actually, this is the reason I feel very optimistic is that, you know, uh, I have had no panic attacks about the list because the challenge of the list is that when you update it, we have to then reformulate our entire process. Um, so, 
you know so it's very complicated but we haven't had any we haven't had any um, any such issues one thing i should also mention here for the listeners uh, is that first of all that i know that your listeners are broad so it's not just e-commerce practitioners so i want to basically say that look this process this nine point process applies to all types of scenarios um, it is uh, we work with b2b businesses we work to be with b2c companies i think the same principles apply there are two things that I should mention over here that are very, very important. The first is that this entire copywriting process is geared towards converting first-time buyers. This is a very important point. It's not designed for upsells and cross-sells, increasing your average order value. This is specifically formulated to convert first-time buyers. And I, I just want to uh, give that context for listeners so that when they're thinking about this, they're thinking about it from that, from that perspective. The other thing is that it's based on the fact that if you look at your analytics data, uh, at least for my website and for all of my clients that I work with, the, the return rate typically is less than 20%. So what that means is that we have one shot in which we need to communicate our value proposition to the buyer. Now, for certain types of B2B businesses, their return rates are much, much higher. Uh, so they could have like a 40, 50% return rate. So again, these principles might not apply perfectly. Uh, so I just want to qualify this works for business websites where the return rate is relatively low, uh, under 20%, and it's designed for websites or businesses where they are trying to improve conversion rates of first-time buyers. Yeah, I guess as, as always, and that's also uh, from, the, from what I'm hearing, that's also how you use it. Uh, it's inspiration uh, for, for optimization, right? And then you still need to validate if it actually works. As always, as always. Okay, good. So we have nine principles to go through. Let's see if we can, um, uh, I mean, we have like um, uh, two minutes, uh, <laughs> two perfect. and a half minutes no, I, for each. This is all I, this is perfect, perfect. Yeah, so so the, so, so basically the, the, you know, the genesis of this is that as people are navigating the, the web, they are, um, as people are navigating the web, we are, you know, I think I read somewhere, this cannot be validated, but I read somewhere that, we, the average consumer is exposed to a thousand ads a day, um, which is just a mind boggling number. And the reality is that our brains were not equipped to process this volume of information. So what has happened is that our brains are incredibly smart at conserving energy. And so they've developed these mechanisms to navigate what I would call the neon, neon maze that we are all living in. And so we don't like when you are, when I see an ad for a treadmill, or I see an ad for a supplement, I'm not going there and doing a scientific analysis of that supplement versus other supplements and doing the cost loss uh, analysis. I'm making a snap judgment. And so in that process, we've developed these shortcuts to, to navigate the world. And so th this nine list is based on those shortcuts. So let's start off with the first one, which is people are skeptical of too good to be true. So we are living in a world where we are I don't think in the history of mankind, there's been more marketing that is coming towards consumers. And so what has happened is that what happens in marketing is that marketing is all hyperbolic. Uh, you know, these are the best running shoes in the history of the world. These are the, this is the best plastic cup ever created. And so obviously that's not true. And, and obviously that's, that's a marketer kind of, you know, being colorful with, with language. But the problem for consumers is that they cannot possibly make a purchase decision simply based on the fact that some Nike is saying that, you know, these are the best running shoes because Nike two, two weeks ago was saying another shoe was the best running shoe. And so they're very skeptical about this. So whenever they encounter something, even if it's objectively true, and this is a really important point, even if your product is 30% lighter than the next running shoe, 
by just simply saying it's 30% lighter can still trigger the too good to be true feeling in the mind of the buyer. So what you need to do is you need to go through an entire sales pitch and say, is there anything that we are saying at any point that might be too good, be perceived as being too good to be true? And if that is found, you need to add more context to it. That's all. Uh, for example, if your shoes are truly 20% lighter, you can you can say in parentheses, you can say, you know, validated by, a, you know, a, in a third party lab or something, some kind of context. And so when I say that people are skeptical of too good to be true, this is the other mistake people make is they are focused only on the big, bold headlines and saying, okay, let's make sure our headline is not uh, categorized as too good to be true. Actually, this works even for very subtle things. So just go through your entire sales pitch and ask yourself, is there anything that we are saying at any point that even remotely sounds too good to be true? If, if you find it, give some qualifying context around it. And that's the whole idea behind point one. Nice. And I think, uh, well, I think that's, uh, it applies to this one, but I think it applies to many of the points in your list. Uh, these are especially uh, questions uh, that are good uh, um, uh, points that you can you can try to figure out for with user research, right? Because these are things, these are, uh, uh, this is perception by your client. You're saying, okay, uh, what is too good to be true? But I, I can imagine it's, it's quite hard for you as the person that's created this product or that's marketing this product. It's really hard for you to say, okay, yeah, this is too good to be true. Or, well, if you know that you're lying, then it's... <laughs> <laughs> then it's clear, uh, but uh, assuming you're uh, you're a good of faith uh, and, and and trying to sell something, I think that's 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 uh, that's hard to judge. So yeah, uh, to me this seems uh, like the, these seem like the perfect uh, questions uh, uh, to to check with uh, actual clients uh, uh, through user research. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Second one. Um, they find expertise sexy. We are living in a hyper-specialized world. So if I have a heart condition and I want to go to a doctor, I don't want to just go to a cardiologist. I want to go to the best cardiologist in the world who practices, is accepting patients and is operating 20 miles away or 20 kilometers away from where I live. So consumers have really kind of become very, very, very specific in their expectations about what they want. They want the best for their price point that is available to them. And therefore, this idea of expertise has become more and more important. You know, 20 years ago, or our parents, we would they would buy um, groceries in a very general grocery store. Now my wife goes to a very specific grocery store for a very specific type of organic items that she's looking for. She goes to another grocery store for different kind of like um, shelf, uh, you know, long-term items. And so their consumers are looking for expertise. And so the, the idea here is obviously, uh, how do we, how do you express that expertise across your entire sales page? It's not just about demonstrating expertise about one attribute about your product at a specific location. It is a style of writing where you, when the reader is reading it, they should feel like they are dealing with an Uber expert. So if you are selling a product that is a treadmill or a workout equipment, you need to demonstrate your expertise, not just around the mechanics of how those machines work, but your expertise in terms of understanding the dynamics of health, uh, understanding the dynamics of habits and all of those things because that is all of that combined is what's going to give this buyer the confidence to, to pull the trigger. Yeah. And then you need to figure out how 
uh, how important is the expertise factor for this specific customer for this specific product? Uh, I can imagine. I really relate to the the the, the expertise is sexy. I, I really like the idea of me going to a specialized cheese shop for the cheese and uh, like um, uh, for, for the the the, uh, the nuts that I like really like the especially macadamia nuts. Uh, I like to go to a specialized shop for that. But in practice, I just go to the supermarket and buy my cheese. <laughs> that's over there because it's way more convenient. So and 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 that's you need to figure out how how these read. But for other products, it might be that the XP expertise wins out uh, miles uh, compared to the to um, convenience. This is a very this is a really good point. So I think what you're saying is hundred percent accurate. The point, the, the, the only qualification I would give is that, remember these people who are on your product page are already on your website. So it's not like, you know, you're talking about like, you know, if the consumer hasn't even left yep. the house and they've decided to go to a grocery, I'm saying that these people are already here. So I'm saying, make sure you're, now that they're here, make sure you're telling them that, you know, you're yep. an expert. Exactly, exactly, nice one, yeah. Um, they, uh, people root for people who beat the odds. I don't think there's going to be any book. I, this is the only tactic of ours where I'm confident that there is nobody else who's identified this as a tactic. Uh, but this kind of goes to, uh, this kind of really connects to my um, mythology, the mythology part of my, so I'm very interested David and Goliath? <laughs> yeah, David, David and Goliath. I'm very interested in, you know, hero's journey, uh, hero with a thousand faces. Uh, uh, Joseph Campbell was a, is a very famous uh, American uh, linguist who talks about this, this idea of di across different cultures, um, how we have these hero's journeys. And basically the idea is that there is something about the human spirit where we are really drawn, and this is across cultures, by the way, it's not just an American phenomena, this is a universal phenomena. We are very much drawn to people who've overcome obstacles. And there are two types of obstacles we focus on. These are internal obstacles. So that's what you talked about, the, the, the you know, external obstacle and internal obstacle. David versus Goliath is an external obstacle. Uh, but an internal obstacle could be the Rocky story, right? Where here's a flawed human being who is trying to better himself. And so what we like to do is when we, when we tell the story on our product pages, we want to kind of communicate this this idea to the buyer, obviously based on what is true for the brand. So, yeah, I think the the, the hero's journey is a is a well known storytelling tactic, right? So Correct. it's uh, something that you can exactly. use to e commerce uh, as well. Nice. Uh, number four, uh, consumers uh, are fascinated by surprising details. So, and, this and is, not, uh, I assume you're not talking about the price being very high. No, no. Yeah, no, not, to, yeah, no, no, that, that's actually the opposite effect. Um, the, the idea here is that, you know, how do I give a consumer something of value before they pull out their credit card? And so I really like the idea of edutainment where you are educating the buyer. So even if they don't buy my treadmill, I've told them about, you know, the human body and, and but the thing is right. it creates yep. a halo effect where they probably will buy from us, but the consumer is now getting value for free. Uh, so, I'll, you know, so, so I like to inject this and this also has another benefit, which is that when you construct sales copy, the reality is that the only person who likes long sales copy is me. Uh, no consumer <laughs> wants to read 20 paragraphs worth of content. So what happens is that by injecting interesting, interesting details across your sales page, you're actually, it's almost like a Kit Kat break 
you're giving the buyer a little mini break uh, to give them something very interesting, which was counterintuitive. And that's the thing. It has to be something counterintuitive, like something that they didn't expect. Um, so if you are selling a treadmill, it can be a very interesting fact about, for example, the human leg has, you know, 110 bones or something. I'm making this up. Um, it is something that's on on brand, but also knowledge for the buyer. Uh, but it also has the benefit, like I said, of breaking the of uh, giving the consumer a, a energy break, which we then can use for them to continue reading our sales page. Because remember, as a copywriter, my goal is not to improve conversion rates. Of course, that's my ultimate goal. My primary goal is to make sure that the buyer continues reading my sales pitch. So if the buyer leaves midstream with my sales pitch, I'm pretty much guaranteed that they won't buy from me. Yeah, I guess uh, most people like novelty. That, that's nice. So if you can tell, and it, uh, I think it also, uh, if it's believable, uh, then, then it creates some form of trust, right? So uh, the, the, oh, right. They're, they're, they're educating me. They're trying to make me a better person already without me even buying stuff. So, um, um, and that's, that's um, I guess you, the reciprocity uh, principle that you w would like to return the favor and hopefully by buying stuff. But uh, yeah, give me some free information, educate me in a, in a good way. And then, um, then I'll, I'll start loving you even more. Number five, consumers are visual animals. 50% of our cortex is devoted to image processing. And so the question is, how do we use copywriting to evoke images in the mind of the buyer? And so um, there's obviously the, you know, there are lots of principles like the endowment effect, where if you feel you own something, you automatically feel uh, closer to it, you feel more attached to it. So really the principle here is that, how do I, as a copywriter, if I'm setting a treadmill, I want to, one of the biggest challenges for a copywriter is the fact that there is a disconnect between my sales page and when the consumer will actually get to benefit from that product because they will, there's shipping involved. That's the problem. But if I, as a copywriter can write copy in a way where the reader feels like they're actually already owning the treadmill, um, it goes deeper in their, in their psyche. And so we like to visualize, we can visualize, for example, positive and negative. So a negative visualization could be something like, you know, imagine your life uh, if you chose not to work out for the next 20 years, what would happen? And, yeah. and that would be a negative visualization. But these really deeply affect the, the, the psychology of the buyer. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, it always <laughs> reminds me of the, the question um, uh, that uh, went around a lot uh, in, my, in my teens. If you had to choose uh, or if something uh, terrible would happen to your brain, uh, would you rather lose sight or lose hearing for me actually actually always was a, a obvious question i would rather lose lose hearing than uh lose lose any any visual uh, uh anything on the visual side uh but then when i started and that's oh, that's just a per personal preference of course but when i started studying psychology and just if you just look at how the brain um uh, where the brain areas are if you just look at the sheer size of the brain that is dedicated to vision versus hearing uh, it, it, it's very obvious what's apparently more important to your brain and it's not hearing. <laughs> I'm, and, and I'm not saying it's not important, of course. It is um, uh, very emotionally way more important, I think, uh, the, the hearing yeah. part. Uh, but practically for, for getting around and apparently for, for your brain and survival, vision is really important. 
Um, and that's, I guess, also why where, where the animal part in your statement comes from. <laughs> it's a right. very historically um, um, motivated and uh, structured uh, thing. Number six, uh, consumers need motivation to break habits. It doesn't happen by itself, I guess. That's right. And the thing is that, you know, there is no product that has been invented. All the jobs that you can think about have already pretty much been taken care of. Um, so what that means is that when a consumer is buying a treadmill, they are not choosing between other treadmills. They are choosing between the choice of not working out at all, or maybe they were going for a run outside and the treadmill is a replacement for that. And so they always can default to continuing to do what they were always doing. And this is the reason why, uh, you know, you can write the most compelling sales pitch in the world if you don't give the buyer a compelling path from, uh, from where they are to where you want them to be in terms of making a purchase, they will not break their, they will not stop their old habits. And so that's the whole idea. It's, it's actually, I would say of all of the tactics, number six is the most important because if you don't give people a motivating reason to fire what they were doing previously and hire what you are asking them to do, um, your, your sales pitch is meaningless. Yes. Yeah, also important one to keep in mind. If, I mean, your product can be better than the, that of the competition, but if they're already using the competition, it needs to be way better. And it, it, it cannot be just a slight improvement because people won't change for that. You need to have really con uh, motivated people uh, because basically we're lazy. I mean, right? I mean, it's, there's a there's a bi big risk involved, a uh, big perceived risk involved in changing your habits. I mean, your habits are there for a reason. Uh, and that's also what your brain assumes. I mean, uh, even if you don't know the reasons anymore, you made this choice before for a reason. Um, and that's, you just want to stick to them. Number seven, um, consumers love personalized experiences. So this again, kind of goes back to the idea that, you know, as a copywriter, I must write in, you know, I've seen some, uh, I've seen some, ad, I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a sports product that I saw and the ad said that this product is perfect for both amateurs and professionals. And that actually is a big turnoff for me. If I'm an amateur, I actually don't want a product that is designed for professionals. If I'm a professional, I don't want to buy a product that was designed for an amateur. And so the idea here is more about optics. It's not about anything else, but it's about the giving the reader the perception that I want to give the reader the feeling that I've hacked their brain and I completely understand their, I understand where they're coming from and who they are. And I want to write copy in a way where they feel like I really understand them. And that's the whole purpose of this idea of uh, point number seven. Yeah, nice. Number eight, uh, consumers like knowing that they've stumbled onto something rare. Uh, so this kind of goes back to this idea that nobody wants to buy a commodity. Uh, even if you're selling a commodity, we don't want to feel like we're buying a commodity. And so the idea is how do I, how do I evoke the feeling that you are different. This is kind of goes back to exclusivity. Like the consumers want to know, I want to buy things that I know that everyone doesn't have access to. We're kind of selfish that way. So how do I communicate that idea? So for example, if I was selling a premium organic dog food supplement, I would say something like, you know, less than 1% of American households or European households invest in organic supplements for their dog. And just that statement 
for this person who's on this page, who's thinking about buying this product, suddenly feels like, oh, wow, I'm in that minority of super caring dog parents. Um, and so that's that's the whole idea. You know, uh, people want to people want to know what they are about to buy is, is a rare and unique thing for them. And can you also apply this or would you also apply this to something that's by definition like a commodity? Like, I don't know, if, if you're an online supermarket, um, almost by definition, everything you're selling is a commodity. So uh, mm. can you still apply this somehow or, or does it only apply to more the more premium products? No, I think I think you can I think you can I think you can apply it. Um, you know, for example, if I'm if I'm a gro grocery store and you know, and I'm you know, yeah. I mean, I think you can definitely apply it. I think the, I think the basic idea here is that you're giving the buyer the dopamine hit of them having like, for example, if I'm a grocery store, um, I could say something like you know, like these olives. We're the only grocery store that has these olives or something like that, you know, and that gives that buyer the topian hit of saying, you know, oh, wow, I'm so lucky I walked to this aisle today because I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't have come here. Yeah, yeah. that kind of idea. Yeah, I guess it, with, with commodities, there can always be some differentiation uh, uh, within the category. Maybe not in general, it's hard to do, but in, within the category, this, right. <laughs> you, you have milk and uh, they all have milk, but this is, special milk from this these local farmers um uh that's very sustainable and these kind of things and then uh, make it uh, special uh, that way nice uh last one number nine uh, we must resolve their negative thoughts so this is the it's kind of the exact opposite of number one which is too good to be true so too good to be true is where the marketer is saying something and the buyer is like oh you are full of bs and i'm going to discount what you're saying uh, must resolve negative thoughts is just the opposite feeling where the consumer, while th this is the reality, as the consumer goes through the sales page, they are having all of these questions that are bubbling in their minds. And the job of the copywriter is to anticipate what those questions are and address those questions. Because let me ask you this question. If someone gets to the bottom of the sales page and they still have unresolved questions, what are they going to do, Guido? What is your guess as to what the consumer will do? Um, uh, wait, that's don't right. make a decision right now. They will, that's exactly right. They will defer judgment and yeah. they will say something like, you know, I don't have all the information I need to buy this uh, treadmill today. I'll come back. I'll come back after a couple of days when I've got, you know, when I've got more time. And again, if you go back to your analytics data, uh, in, in the case of my clients, everyone has less than 20% return rate. That's a very bad odd, uh, for, for me to kind of rely on. And so what we need to do is we need to anticipate all of those negative questions. So simple things, for example, I want to give a simple example. Let's say that your shipping is not free. Let's say for whatever reason you're, you're paying for shipping. A lot of times when brands have bad news, the way they deal with it is they either bury the bad news or they don't talk about it at all. And my whole idea is that why not get in front of it? So what you could do is you could say that we charge for shipping because we, we pay for shipping. And if you, the moment you say that, then you'll be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know? Uh, or you could say something like, you know, we care deeply about the packaging of the product. So we actually invest a lot in packaging because we want to make sure that when you get it to your home, there is no chance that it's something is broken. The consumer is like, oh yeah, it makes sense for me to spend $20 for shipping if that's what I'm getting. But when you pretend like shipping is not a concern, you are, you're actually leaving that negative thought unresolved. 
Yeah, it actually reminds me of, I did a, did a couple of uh, experiments uh, exactly on this because in the user research, uh, we found out a couple of people were surprised uh, about shipping costs uh, later on in the process uh, beyond the, the product detail page. And when when there are, uh, some other people did see the shipping costs because they were listed on the product detail page, but they were like hidden below some product information. And uh, and, and some people actually commented on, the, commented on that during user research saying, okay, you, you're trying to hide this uh, and now I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't like that. And um, uh, we actually, so the experiment was uh, to move the shipping cost. And we didn't, we didn't even did, do the fancy stuff that you just mentioned, like explaining uh, why you have shipping cost. We just simply moved the shipping cost. And we're just like, um, it was a very simple line, like shipping cost uh, and then the amount. And we just moved that to, to directly below um, um, the, the price of the product and it increased conversions. Awesome. So uh, we have uh, gone through our nine points. Um, what can what can we expect for the next year? Uh, how many uh, points are you going to add or remove here? <laughs> I really, I I really would actually I would like to re remove two if I can. I would like to like further simplify it to maybe like mm -hmm. seven core tactics. Um, but uh, yeah, but we, please don't. You're bringing very bad uh, visions in my in, you're visualizing uh, very bad ideas in my head <laughs> Rishi uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, again for uh, uh, some great uh, contact and uh, sharing that uh, with us uh, I'd love to have you, uh, you on the show and um, let me know if you have any any other list I think it's really uh, fascinating uh, uh, what you do with, with uh, the specialization and I guess that's also one point of the list, right? The, um, uh, we we, um, uh, we like to um, uh, go for a specialist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, thanks so much. Uh, final question uh, uh, for you. Um, who in the CRO field um, uh, should we interview for the CRO Cafe podcast? Who's the, who's the person that you've, uh, that you've been watching lately on... Um, I don't know, on LinkedIn or wherever you are on Twitter, did you say, hey, you should interview those uh, those people, those persons? Have you interviewed Chad Sanderson? Yes. Oh, he's such a good we, we, okay. we, So he, he's, he's, uh, lately he's very uh, focused on uh, on data models, right? And, uh, and, and data That's contracts. Right. And yeah. we, did, we, we didn't speak about that topic specifically. Uh, so uh, maybe a good one to, uh, to invite him over uh, to talk about that. Yeah, there's another there's another person. His name is Shiloh Jones, and um, I'll I can send you his contact information. And Shiloh is what I really really admire about him is that he's been involved in the e-commerce space now for twenty years. He is more often he's more involved in op, like he is in the PPC space. But he what I really like about him is that just his broad knowledge about uh, the evolution of 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 um, of e-commerce. He, he's a really smart guy. So. Nice. I, well, I only interview you with smart people, so. Uh. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, yeah. Richie, thank you so much. Uh, love talking to you, and I uh, hope to talk to you uh, again soon. Let me know if you have something. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye bye.